In the second chapter of Habakkuk, we find these words that are not so much the text as the theme for my message. The prophet has just finished dealing with the follies of idolatry. And then he says this, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In the first chapter of Genesis, we hear the voice of God for the first time. His words are not incidental to our search for knowing ourselves, but central to that search. In Genesis 1.26, the Bible says that God said, let us make man in our image. The young Christian reads these words for the first time, but they blend into the background of the strange things recorded in these early chapters of Genesis. Here he reads of the phased creation of the physical and biological universes, of the first man and the first woman and the first sin, and of the terrible consequences of that first sin on man's relationship with God and man's relationship with man. These mysterious first recorded words of God hardly stand out against the mysterious sequence of events that forms their context. But sooner or later, as he begins to grow in his desire to know more and more about the foundation of his Christian faith, he returns to this part of the Bible, this time reading more slowly and more carefully. And he finds himself puzzled because he agrees again that God said, let us make man in our image. And this time he wonders to himself, to whom was God speaking? when he said those words. He considers the possibility that God was speaking to the angels, but soon dismisses this suggestion for nowhere else in scripture is it suggested that the angels had anything to do with creation and nowhere is it claimed that they bear the image of God. He remembers classes that he's taken in high school and college, classes in biology and history and psychology and philosophy and ethics and morality, classes in which the theory of evolution was taught as the only explanation of human origins or was applied to the various aspects of academic study. And he wonders, could God have been speaking to the monkeys when he said, let us make man in our image? But he quickly sets that aside is unreasonable. So the question remains, to whom was God speaking when he said, let us make man in our image? As a committed Christian, this reader understands that if that answer is going to be found anywhere, it will be found on the pages of Holy Scripture. And remembering that his pastor once told him that the best way to read or study the Bible is with a question in one's mind, he begins to eagerly read from Genesis 1 onward. He reads through the rest of the Old Testament, but he doesn't find an answer. He turns to the New Testament and works his way through the first three books, the first three Gospels, but they leave his curiosity unsatisfied. But then he turns to that, first, that fourth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of John. And in its opening verses, he reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made with, through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And here it's revealed that in the very beginning, before a single atom or molecule of the physical or biological universe had been created, there was something or someone John refers to symbolically or poetically as the word. It must have been to this mysterious word that God was speaking when he said, let us make man in our image. And now the pressing question becomes, who is this word? This time the reader doesn't have to wait so long to find an answer. For just a few verses later in this first chapter of John, he reads that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it's clear that he's speaking of Jesus of Nazareth, a man who described himself as being the son of God, a man who once said of himself before Abraham was, I am. We take this discovery back to the first chapter of Genesis. And now we understand that this mysterious conversation referred to there was one that took place between God the Father and God the Son prior to the last phase of their creation of all things. These words of God tell us something marvelous about the Lord Jesus, the one we have come to trust as the Savior of our souls, and we try to trust as the Lord of our lives, the one whom we are called to honor in our living, the one in whose name we offer our praise and our prayers to God the Father. But in these initial words of God, we also learn something of great value about human life in general and about our lives in particular. On the grounds of this and other passages of Scripture, we learn that the first humans to inhabit the planet and each human life since are all special individual creations of God. And since every person is a special creation, then each human life has value. Whether that life is wanted and healthful and productive or not. Whether that life is strong or happy or useful or not. Whether that life is independent and self-sustaining or is being carried in the womb or lies shriveled in a bed of a nursing home. Every single innocent human life, according to the scriptures, has value in the eyes of God and must be assigned values by societies that hope to be thought of as civilized. Regarding morality and the stewardship of life, we learn from these words of God that in spite of the prevailing intellectual and moral fads of the age in which we live, we are not accidents, perfectly free to do whatever we choose to do with life and its opportunities and its resources and are unaccountable for the choices that we make. We live as creatures in a world created by God and in a time appointed by God. If life is to be satisfying to us, then life must be lived according to the will of the one who created us. And by logical and necessary extension, these first words of God also convince us that every human life has purpose. 
And that purpose is to be found only in the intentions of the God who created us. For those who long for life to have the fullness of its potential, the most important question of life becomes that asked by the prophet Micah, what does the Lord your God require of you? For the one who wrestles with the prophet's question, there are two passages of scripture that will be most helpful. Two passages that reveal that God scans the face of humanity, looking intently into every heart and mind and face for two qualities among the highest of his creatures. Psalm 14 says, The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand and who seek God. And in John 4, the one we've learned to call Lord said, The hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. The God who once created man in his own image, and the God before whom all men will one day stand in final judgment, reveals that he's looking for something very specific from us. He's searching for people who understand the privileges and obligations of their status as his creatures, and who as a result of that understanding seek God and worship God. And as the Bible teaches that the greatest longing of God is for men and women, and young people, and children to seek and to worship him, so it reveals that the deepest desire of those who love God is to be in those places where that true worship takes place. In Psalm 84, an ancient believer spoke of his longing to be in such place. He expressed his envy for the simple birds of the air who made their nests there and never had to leave. And he said, I would rather play the simplest of roles in the house of my God than to live a life envied by those who have no faith. And in Psalm 27, David wrote, One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I'd like to talk with you for a few moments this morning about worship. Since worship is the single most important thing that we're called to do as Christians, then the single most important activity of the church is its worship of God. This means that decisions about the worship of the church and the decisions to participate in that worship are the most vital decisions its leaders and its people will ever make. I suggested to you last Sunday that if we were to start a brand new church, I'm not suggesting that, but I'm, I'm suggesting it's an interesting thing to think about, then there are questions, important questions that we would have to ask, our answers to which would become the foundation for the faith and the life of that new church. And the most important of those questions would have to do with its worship. One of the most vital questions that we would have to ask is this, what is the purpose of worship. Why do we come together on Sunday morning? What 
in the eyes of God, are we supposed to try to accomplish in our coming together? Many of us have visited other churches, and we've noticed that out in the wider church, there are radically different styles of worship. To a great extent, this difference exists because people answer this question about the purpose of worship in different ways. And that makes the question, what is the purpose of worship, a very important one in this or any other age. Is the purpose of our Sunday morning gatherings to make people feel good about themselves? Or is it to win non-believers to Jesus Christ? Is it to stir the emotions of those who are in attendance? Or is it to rally people to go back out into the world committed to make a difference there? How we plan services of worship and how we take the measure of their effectiveness are reflections of our answers to that question. If the Bible is our guide, then our conviction must be that the purpose of worship is nothing other and nothing less than to honor God, to express our praise to him. It is not to focus on our needs. It is to focus on his glory. Michigan is playing Michigan State in football. Both teams are undefeated. The stadium is packed. There's not a neutral fan in the stands. Everyone there is focused on the action taking place on the field. No one is thinking about his health or his bills or his job or his marriage. All of these things are set aside, at least for the moment, as if these fans have been transported beyond themselves into a different dimension of life. In another example, the auditorium is filled with men and women listening with euphoric attention as one of the world's finest orchestras plays Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Like the fans in the football stadium, no one here is planning or fretting or regretting or rejoicing in anything but the majesty of the music that fills the room. The glory and the mercy of God should so captivate the minds and fill the hearts of people who kneel before him in worship that all other concerns and thoughts are at least momentarily set aside in their lives. This is the central purpose for the worship of the church. Services should be carefully planned to encourage and facilitate this. Worshipers should be in prayer for themselves that this, in fact, is their experience in worship that we become so engrossed in the glory and the majesty and the holiness and the mercy of our God that all else is at least for that time utterly forgotten. I'm doing a series of sermons on worship. I'm going to continue it next week. And preparing for that, you might enjoy thinking about some questions. What should be the content of Christian worship? And what is the best order for the content of Christian worship? And why don't we encourage spontaneous outbursts of enthusiasm and applause during worship? We'll be talking about all of these things. But for now, let me close by reminding you that real worship, the kind of worship that God seeks, comes not from the printed page, 
but from the heart. At the end of the 19th Psalm, we find a word that expresses this, this this recognition that worship is more than proper posture and dignified behavior and quiet attention. There the psalmist said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Real worship is the odd response of the creature who finds himself in the presence of his omnipotent and glorious creator. Real worship is the trembling response of the sinner who finds himself in the presence of his holy judge. Real worship is the joyful, relieved response of the penitent who has been assured of the grace and the mercy of God. Real worship is found in our eagerness to arrive and our reluctance to leave. It's found in the sight of our tears and in the sound of our laughter. It's found in our humming on Monday the tunes that we sang on Sunday and in the stack of burdens that we leave behind scattered around the sanctuary as we leave carrying the sweet peace and take leave of one another for another week. The prophet Habakkuk wrote, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The psalmist said that the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand and who seek God. And the one we call Lord said, The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. As the Lord looks down from heaven on this Sunday morning, as he searches the hearts and the minds of his people, maybe he be pleased at what he discovers among us. Let us pray. Our God, we often thank you for the opportunity and the freedom to worship, but far more than that, we thank you for the desire to worship desire that would cause us to violate the law if that were necessary, a desire that would take us to places that were uncomfortable to the flesh. We thank you for that because that is one of many signs that your spirit has taken up his residence within us and that we are forever your adopted children. We praise you for that. We pray, our God, that our lives tomorrow might reflect the glory in which we have basked on this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.